Well, grab a seat. It is a joy to be with you. My name is Phil Pearson, the ministry director here and part of our pastoral and preaching team, and it's a joy, as always, to be with you. Um, I've, before I worked for St. Pete's or before I joined St. Pete's, um, I used to work in a restaurant. And when I first got a job, I worked uh, Broadway Granville. And my wife and I were living in Mount Pleasant when we first moved here. And then we had been really wanting a dog. So we switched apartments that would allow us to get a dog as people struggle in Vancouver to find apartments where dogs can live. Um, but so we moved right behind Broadway Granville. It was a 30-second walk from, the f from my apartment door to the back door of the restaurant that I worked in, and it was incredible. But the day we moved from Mount Pleasant over to Fairview, I got a call as we were moving, and it was my regional manager, and he's like, hey, Phil, how's it going? I was like, good, how are you? He's like, good, I just want to let you know we're going to promote you. And I was like, awesome, what a great day. And he goes, yeah, we're going to switch you stores, and we're going to move you to downtown. And I was like, uh, OK, um, cool. And he's like, oh, what are you doing? And I was like, I'm moving behind West Broadway, <laughs> literally as we speak. He was like, well, that sucks. Anyways. <laughs> Enjoy that for about a week, and then you'll go to downtown. And when I switched to downtown, I mean, I, I learned my lesson. A 30-second commute is too good of a commute in that you just get called all the time to live in the restaurant. Um, but then it becomes you're too close to it. You just want to leave all the time. It's a challenge. So anyways, I switched commutes. And now I, or then, I worked um, right at Coal Harbor, right at the Jack Pool Plaza. And it was a beautiful commute, one that was a treat to switch over to because I would bike down Burrard, across the Burrard Street Bridge, get a view of the mountains, I'd cut over onto Pacific and then ride up Hornby, this beautiful bike lane, and I would ride that all the way to Jackpool Plaza at Cole Harbor. And it was incredible. But then 2021 rolled around. And I don't know if you remember 2021, but I'm going to paint a picture of it and then let you know a rather interesting fact along the way. So my bike ride, I'd turn right onto Pacific and then up onto Hornby, and I'd start biking. And, and as 2021 rolled around, um, kind of the release valve of COVID um, tension was coming off, and a lot was changing in our city. And I'd, I'd be biking up, and I would make it to the corner of Hornby and Nelson, which is the law courts just a block and a half away. And there'd be a protest there. And often it would be anti-mask or anti-government, some rather uh, colorful language about the prime minister or the health minister was being used. And I would bike and kind of get annoyed. I usually had my headphones in, but I would hear the shouting, and I'd keep on going. And then I would make it to the south of the, the, south of the museum plaza. And in 2021, um, a memorial began to be erected for lost indigenous children and for graves that were being dug up and slowly each of my days of bike riding, I saw that grow and grow. And it was a protest of sorts, a cry, a memorial for brokenness, for a broken system, for the ways we've failed. I'd make it to the north of the plaza, and I mean, there you would get a litany of different protests. Maybe it was another anti-vaccine or anti-mask, or, or maybe it was for farmers in India. It was for Syrian women. It was for war starting in the Ukraine. And then I'd keep on going, and I'd make it to Cordova, and that's when you'd start hearing honking. It might be the farmers, or it might be a convoy that's about to head east. And then I would make it to Jackpool Plaza, the beautiful Olympic cauldrons. And that's where it got really tough, because the, the crowds would swell and block my bike ride. And I'd have to get off my bike and walk through. And maybe it was a march starting for Black Lives Matter. Maybe it was an environmental rally, or many other different protests. There were some days where there were three or four protests going on in the same plaza. And as I biked there, 
every single day, all of 2021, I started becoming annoyed and numb with all these protests. In 2021, VPD released to the global news that there was 800 protests in 2021 in Vancouver. And I think I saw 400 of them on my commute. But as we watch protests, and as, as I think I spoke with so many people, we all started becoming jaded and annoyed and numb to what's going on with protests. We forget what protests are sometimes about because there's so many of them. But at the heart of a protest is a cry. The world is not right. Something is broken and we want it fixed. And we cry out. Protests are an act of political theater crying out for change in the world. And I would say this, we've become so numb to protest that we did not notice that this morning, as palm branches were waved and our kids came down, a little protest happened in front of us. Today is Palm Sunday, and it's the beginning of Holy Week, and it is such a joy to celebrate this Christian week. But it starts with a protest, and I think for those of us who've grown up in church, Palm Sunday becomes pageantry. It becomes a musical. It becomes a cute little thing where kids sometimes wear costumes or maybe, depending on the church you grew up in, there were live animals, and it became this big and wonderful and happy show. But I want to argue today that Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry as it's called, is a protest. Jesus is riding in, leading a protest. And so today, what I want to do is I want to look at the four, four main icons and imageries of Palm Sunday. I want to look at the direction and the destination of the protest. I want to look at the donkey, the steed that's leading them in. I want to look at the directions and the declaration. And then ultimately, I want to land on the decision. That's right, full alliteration today, all the Ds. So direction, donkey, decorations, declaration, and decision. How does that sound? Are you with me? Okay. Well. In order to begin, let's, uh, let me read Mark um, 11, verse 1 to 11, one more time. Um, and as I read it, think of the language of protest. Let's see what is going on here, and then we'll continue to explore it. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage, at Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter, you will find a colt tied to which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it, and if anyone asks you, or anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found the colt tied to a door outside the street, and they untied it. And some, um, some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing, untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus, they threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from fields. And those who went before and those who followed behind were shouting, Hosanna! Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. And when he looked around, it was already late. He went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is the word of the Lord. So let's start off with the direction. Mark 11.1, 1, it says this, Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage, and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. 
All four gospel accounts, when they tell of this story of the triumphal entry, they start with this piece of information. Bethany, Bethpage, and Jerusalem. And it may just seem like an interesting piece of geographical information, but there's a lot packed in this statement. And all four gospel writers remark it because something important is going on. The direction of this protest, as we'll see, marks two things. First of all, it's a rival direction. And the second is it's a returning direction. It's a rival direction and a returning direction. Let's start off with the rival direction. The historian Marcus Borg, he captures the importance of the direction this way, and I love this. He says this, Two processions entered Jerusalem on a spring day in the year 30. One was a a peasant procession, and the other an imperial procession. From the east, Jesus rode on a donkey down the Mount of Olives. And on the opposite side of the city from the west, Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of Edumia, Judea, and Samaria, entered Jerusalem at the head of a column of imperial cavalry and soldiers. Jesus' procession proclaimed the kingdom of God. Pilate's proclaimed the power of the empire. We start seeing this protest a little more as we start seeing two rival groups moving towards the heart of the city. And see, Pontius Pilate, he was a political figure, a figurehead really put in place by Caesar to stop um, Judea and Jerusalem and the Jewish people from rising up in revolt, which is something that had been happening several times in the previous century. The Maccabean revolt led by Judas Maccabee, the the Judas the Hammer Maccabee is kind of one of the titles. Um, It had gone in 161 BC and was a a violent revolution. And so Pontius Pilate would come to try to quash what was going on of any potential political revolt going on in Israel. And Borg goes on, he says this, he said, it was standard practice of the Roman governors of Judea to be in Jerusalem for the major holidays. They did so not out of emphatic reverence for the religious devotion or religious devotion for their Jewish subjects, but to be in the city in case there was trouble. And Pilate, he didn't live in Jerusalem. He lived to the west, north Cicero on the sea, and he would come in on all these major holidays with royal pomp, with political power. He would come in to show Israel, if you're going to rise up, we will put you down And because at these holidays, there was this sense of patriotism, this sense of them living into their fulfillment of crying out, and they would say, don't stand up or we'll put you down. And so this political protest or this political procession is coming in from the West. And at the same time, Jesus chooses now to come in from the East, the opposite end. And their language, their imagery, their iconography couldn't be different. And we'll we'll see that with with the donkey. But that's the rival procession. But then there's the returning procession, because first we see two rival kingdoms are headed to one another. But as Jesus rides in from the east towards the west, there's actually a deeper Old Testament fulfillment going on here. Because in Genesis, the first book of the Bible, Adam and Eve, when they leave leave Eden and are exiled, they head east. And the book of Genesis begins to recount the story of of humanity moving further eastward away from the garden. And Jesus is using this moment to come in eastward towards the temple. And the temple was filled with iconography and images that would call back to the Garden of Eden. 
And so there's this idea as Jesus is making this triumphal entry, it is a triumphal re-entry, it is a return, it is a leading back to where humanity is meant to be. It's God coming back to the garden, it's humanity coming back to the garden. And so there's two types of protests at the same time, a return and arrival. And we see it more as it goes with the donkey. And um, Mark continues on, he says, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. And if anyone asks of you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and will send it back immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied to the door outside the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said, what are you doing? untying the colt, and they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go, and they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. So we understand the direction and the destination a little bit, but the steed, the donkey, is very important. And again, it has two types of meaning going on. First, there's a political meaning, and then there's an Old Testament fulfillment meaning. Pilate would be riding in on a war horse, or maybe pulled in a chariot with the religious power. It would be akin to a president riding in on a tank with flags and trumpets blazing as they go into an occupied country or city. The message is clear. You are under Roman power. But there were times in ancient Near East when kings would actually ride in on donkeys, and it was to their homeland or to homes where there was peace, and it was a symbol. We're not going to run you down. It's a peaceful burden, um, beast of burden. It's a working animal that they would ride in. There's not much speed. It just can keep on going for a long time. And so kings would ride in on donkeys as symbols of peace to their, to their cities that they were coming in on. And Pilate is not coming in on a beast of burden. He's coming in on a stallion, on a war horse with military procession. But Jesus chooses a donkey. And it's, it's very intentional. This isn't an accidental thing. As we see as the story goes, Jesus says, Go find this colt, this donkey that's in the city. Untie it and bring it to me. None of it is accidental. All of it is intentional. And this is the first time in all the gospel writings that we see Jesus riding an animal. All the rest of the time in all the gospels, Jesus just walks everywhere. But then he picks this moment very intentionally to ride in on a donkey. And so it's both a political language, but it's also an Old Testament language, and in two ways. Um, in the book of 1 Kings, it's recounting the history of, da of Israel's kings. And David is, of course, the height of Israel's kings. And at one point, he's aging. He's going to die soon. And one of his younger sons, and I really struggle with the pronunciation, Adonijah, Adonijah um, he's wanting to take over the throne of Israel. And he's about to go and lay claim to Israel all on his own. But David has said that his son Solomon would be king. And so he says, go get my mule, put, uh, put Solomon on it, and parade him through the city saying, this is the true king of Israel. Again, a beast of burden wandering through the city with a procession around him. This is the true king of Israel. Jesus knows what he's doing with this display. He's referring all the way back to Solomon. And, and even more than that, Matthew captures this prophecy from Zechariah. He says, um, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Jesus is picking this very specific moment to ride in 
on an animal of peace, a beast of burden that's both commenting on um, Roman political life and also on Hebraic religion. He's fulfilling two things at once. And I think that's this beautiful image. He's coming in not in power, not in war, not in victory, but in peace, in humility, and in meekness. And he's painting this picture of the kind of king he's portraying himself as. And there's this last beautiful detail that I've been wrestling with for weeks. Jesus says, um, or the, the disciples say to the people that they take the donkey from, don't worry, Jesus will send it back right away. And that seems like just another random piece of information. Okay, nice guy, he's going to send the donkey back. But that's actually this another deep cut to the Old Testament. Because in Samuel, the beginning of um, the story of kings in Israel, God is warning Israel what it will be like to have a king because Israel is crying out. They're like, we want a king like all other nations. And God gives this whole list. If you have a king, this is how you will be treated. And he says, he'll take your sons and put them into war. They'll serve at the front and the back of military lines. He'll take your daughters and turn them into bakers and perfumers. He'll take parts of your fields and your vineyards. He will take and take and take from you. And in Samuel 3.16, I think, he says, He will take your male and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to work. And so when Jesus says, we'll send it back, he's giving an image of the kind of king he will be. He'll not be the kind of king who needlessly takes from you, who steals from you, who uproots your life. He gives you back what is yours. He returns to you what is yours, even when it's given to him. So there's this deep political image of what is going on as Jesus rides in on the donkey and ultimately returns it. We're getting this image of a peaceful, meek, humble, loving, generous king. And we see this come to fulfillment with the decorations. The crowd responds this way, and many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. As this protesting parade goes through the city, it becomes a royal procession. People take off the the cloaks and coats from their back, and they lay it on the ground to make a royal carpet leading into the heart of the city. And I mean, like, who would you take your cloak off for? and put it down to let them feel royal, to give this imagery of royalty. And then they go into the fields, they cut palm branches, as John tells us, and they begin waving them and laying them on the street. And palm branches, again, another loaded image, because palm branches were given to contestants of sports games in Rome. When they would win, they would be awarded a palm branch. It meant victory. And so they're laying palm branches on the ground. They're waving them. And the the message is clear. Jesus is our victor. He's won. He's won the battle and he's coming in and he's leading us. And so they're waving it with this. The crowd is joining in on the royal procession. They're responding to the image that Jesus is giving. And then it fully comes to this head with the declaration. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna. Join me. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessing is the coming coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. 
See, every protest ends up having a chant that develops. Maybe it's intentional, maybe it's organic, but people begin shouting things to give voice to what they're protesting. And here it's a declaration, Hosanna. And Hosanna, as we've said, it means God save us, save us now, rescue us. And the interesting thing is it's not a lamenting chant. It's not a, a painful cry. It's actually a joyful cry. It's, it's a cry knowing it's going to happen. It's a cry of surety. It's a cry of conviction. God save us is both a cry, but it's knowing it's going to happen. They're seeing it in front of them. And then they say, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. See, there's this joy, this electricity, this excitement building in the crowd, and they shout this out. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And this response of the crowd should shock us in a number of ways. And the reason it should actually shock us is if you read through Mark front to back, this is the first time where Jesus does not quiet the crowd. He doesn't quiet people when they say who he is. All through Mark, people keep mentioning, oh, Jesus, you're the Messiah, and he tells them to be quiet. He asks Peter, who do you think I am? And Peter replies, you're the Messiah. And then Mark writes, Jesus warned them not to tell anyone. Or in Mark 1, Jesus heals a leper, and he says to him, see to it that you tell no one anything but go and show yourself to the priest. And there's these moments all throughout Mark's gospel where people are starting to catch on to what Jesus is doing, but he tells them, shush, don't tell anyone. He's a librarian, shushing them repeatedly throughout the gospel of Mark. And so it should surprise us that at this moment, riding in on a donkey with a royal procession building, he allows the people to say it. And they're saying, you're our king, you're the Messiah, you're coming as a son of David. Hosanna, God save us, you're here. And Jesus doesn't stop the, the parade. He doesn't stop the protest. He encourages it as it's going. One writer said that the disciples were most likely going around jeering up the crowd as good MCs, building up the hype as it's going. And it comes to this, the time has come. The kingdom of heaven is truly announced. The king is announced as rival to any other kingdoms. And so the direction, the donkey, the decorations, the declaration, they lead us to a decision. And I mean, Tim Keller puts it better than I ever could, and I've been trying to find a better way to say it, but he just says this, Jesus makes a demand as he enters into Jerusalem on the back of the donkey, and it's crown me or kill me. There's no other option. You can't have two kings. You can't have two kingdoms in the same place. You need to pick your side. So either crown me as your king or get rid of me. There's no other choice. And as we'll come to see over the course of this week, as Holy Week proceeds, this revelation of Jesus' kingship is too much for his enemies. The protest will ultimately turn into a trial of his death, and then he'll be crucified because he's rivaling the powers at work in Rome. He's rivaling power and patriotism and capitalism and consumerism and nationalism and fear and hate that are at work in all other rival kingdoms. And so they do the thing that all kingdoms need to do in that way. They put him to death. 
They get rid of them. And the beauty is that we'll come to see is the cross that meant to be put it down turns into a throne. Jesus is crowned with a crown of thorns. He is put with royal colors that are pushed into his open wounds, and he'll be lifted up over Israel. But God will turn that on its head, and this death will become new life. But on Palm Sunday, we stand on the side of the road, and we are invited in. What will you do? You're joining in on the crowd. Will you join in on the protest? Will you shout, Hosanna, God save us? Will we call him our king? Or is his message of sacrifice too much? Is his kingdom of love and humility too much for us? Because it is rival to all other kingdoms. In some way, shape, or form, it will rival every other kingdom we're in. So St. Peter's, my hope for us, my hope is that we can lay down our cloaks, that we can wave palm branches of victory, that we can shout Hosanna in the highest, that we can see the ways that Jesus is leading a rival protesting kingdom right into our own hearts. Two kingdoms go into Jerusalem and they meet in our hearts and lead us to make this decision. And my prayer is that we as a church, we protest these rival kingdoms. We crown Jesus as our true king. We follow him into the kingdom of heaven, but it will take everything. But it is a good gift to follow. Today, we had our, our pre-service worship, our North X worship, and, and one of the images that came up was that Jesus comes to save. And sometimes we make that language just cute. Oh, Jesus has come to save us, but... Jesus has come to save you. Of all the ways that you're broken and in bondage and chained in addiction and challenges, all the ways we fall into these kingdoms that try to take our heart, Jesus comes to save us. And it requires us to call him our king. And I hope that we as a church do this. We show it to our city and it spreads. But it starts with each one of us saying, I crown you my king. And with that, let me pray.